I really wanted to do this episode on the uprisings happening in seemingly every major city across the country. But the situation is changing so rapidly that by the time you're hearing this, it'd already be out of date. But as hundreds of thousands of protesters take back the streets from the oppressor, as they burn down police stations and bust open jails, all you need to know is that no matter what, the protesters are more than justified. We are in the midst of a critical historical event, one that will steer our destiny as a people. Now is the time to ask yourself, which side are you on? You are either with the people or you are against us. There is no middle ground in the pursuit of justice. If you're going to a protest, cover your eyes, mouth, and any scars or tattoos. If you're tear-gassed, don't wash out your eyes with milk. Water is much more effective. It's not illegal for the cops to force you to open your phone through Face ID and Touch ID. So disable both of them and replace it with at least a six-digit code. Be on the lookout for and learn how to identify agent provocateurs sent by the police. Look for small signs like black steel-toed boots, blue bracelets, white armbands, cords near the bottom of the shirt, and a faint outline around the chest from a Kevlar vest. And so, as thousands in Minneapolis last night chanted, it's not a riot, it's a revolution. I figured that today would be as good a day as any to talk about one of the many things that paved the way for these protests. In a similar vein to episode 53, which I did on the Tulsa race massacre and the white supremacist burning of Black Wall Street, today I want to talk about an event that uh, you definitely weren't taught about in school, but has helped shape oppressive American race policy. Today, I'm talking about the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 74, Insurrection. Let's set the scene. The Civil War has just ended, and North Carolina has seen its fair share of damage. But still, the title of largest and most prosperous city in the state falls on Wilmington, North Carolina. From across the state, formerly enslaved persons relocate to Wilmington, and eventually the city becomes majority black, 55% to be exact. It seemed to be the ideal of Reconstruction. There were black city aldermen, black judges, black superintendents, black mailmen. In the entire city, only one restaurant was owned by a white man. And out of 22 barbershops, 20 were black-owned. Wilmington was home to the only black-owned daily newspaper in the country, 
The black residents of Wilmington had seen huge jumps in quality of life and material wealth thanks to their newfound ability to exercise a supposedly unalienable right. But any threat to the primacy of the white American was a threat to the ability of the white American to exploit and to oppress. During Reconstruction, former Confederates were banned from holding public office for a set period, which meant that control of southern cities and states went largely to Republicans. The Democrats, ironically enraged that they had been denied the right of political participation, began to form paramilitary groups throughout the South, the most famous, of course, being the KKK, founded by former Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, a bust of whom is proudly displayed in the Tennessee State House. Then, in 1870, the federal government passes the Enforcement Act, which was meant to directly combat the rise of the Klan. Of course, in for a penny, in for a pound, the Democrats found a sneaky way around what is also referred to as the first Ku Klux Klan Act. They simply decided that they wouldn't limit themselves to just the Klan. More paramilitary groups began sprouting up like weeds, but the one that's most relevant to this story is the Red Shirts, a white supremacist group that was founded in Mississippi in 1875 and spread to the Carolinas soon after. The years began to roll by and Democrats in the state capitol slowly strip away the reforms of Reconstruction banning interracial relationships, mandating school segregation, stripping away voting rights. But then, from 1892 to 1896, the United States plummets into a depression as a result of the somewhat misleadingly named Panic of 1893. With this, poor white cotton farmers who had been victimized by capitalism formed an interracial coalition with black Carolinians. They ran on a fusion ticket with policies for free public education and equal voting rights for all. And wouldn't you know it, but in the state elections of 1894 and 1896, that fusion ticket won every single statewide office and also assumed control of the city of Wilmington. Almost immediately, they began introducing economic reforms, lower interest rates, stricter regulations on banks and railroads, and all sorts of legislation that the city desperately needed. And so, in 1898, a group of nine men begin conspiring to overthrow the government of Wilmington. The state chair of the Democratic Party, Fernifold Simmons, who helped them in this endeavor, decided that they could not lose if they ran a scare campaign on a white supremacist platform. In the run-up to what would become the only successful coup in United States history, prominent local Democrats formed white supremacy clubs and compelled every white man in Wilmington to join them. If they refused, then they were banished from the city and told that there was more than enough rope for them, too. And then, 
here comes the red shirts back into the picture. They start appearing at rallies around the city, hundreds of them, sometimes accompanied by a senator, sometimes by a brass band, sometimes by cannons. But all of these instances served one purpose, intimidation. Meanwhile, that secret group of nine men, fittingly called the Secret Nine, had expanded, and they wrote their first document. They called it the White Declaration of Independence, as if the original thing wasn't white enough. Here are the eight demands that they made in it. Understandably, I've um, changed some of the vocabulary. Number one, that the time has come for the intelligent citizens of this community owning 95% of the property and paying taxes in proportion to end the rule by African Americans. Two, that we will not tolerate the action of unscrupulous white men in affiliating with the African Americans so that by means of their vote they can dominate the intelligent and thrifty element in the community, thus causing business to stagnate and progress to be out of the question. Number three, that the African American has demonstrated by antagonizing our interests in every way, and especially by his ballot, that he is incapable of realizing that his interests are and should be identical with those of the community. Number four, that the progressive element in any community is the white population and that the giving of nearly all the employment to African-American laborers has been against the best interests of this county and city, and is sufficient reason why the city of Wilmington, with its natural advantages, has not become a city of at least 50,000 inhabitants. Number five that we propose in the future to give white men a large part of the employment heretofore given to African Americans because we realize that white families cannot thrive here unless there are more opportunities for employment of the different members of their families. 6. That we white men expect to live in this community peaceably to have and provide absolute protection for our families. Who shall be safe from insult or injury for all persons, whomsoever? We are prepared to treat the African Americans with justice in all matters which do not involve sacrifice of the intelligent and progressive portion of the community but are all equally prepared now and immediately to enforce what we know to be our rights. 7. That we have been, in our desire for harmony and peace, blinded both to our interests and our rights. 
A climax was reached when the African-American paper of this city published an article so vile and slanderous that it would in most communities have resulted in a lynching. And yet, there is no punishment provided by the courts adequate for the offense. We, therefore, owe it to the people of this community and city as protection against such license in the future, that the record cease to be published and that its editor be banished from this community. Number eight. We demand that he leave the city forever within 24 hours after the issuance of this proclamation. Second, that the printing press from which the record has been issued, be shipped from the city without delay, that we be notified within twelve hours of the acceptance or rejection of this demand. The record was the black-owned daily newspaper that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. And that article that they're referencing in number seven was an op-ed by Alexander Manley, the paper's owner, which said that consensual relationships could exist between black men and white women. But that response that they asked for in their declaration, they didn't get it. So with help from the Red Shirts, they assembled 500 men at the Wilmington Armory, armed themselves with every weapon they could find, including a Gatling gun and stormed the office of the Wilmington Daily Record. They destroyed everything inside and burnt it to the ground. Soon, 2,000 white supremacist thugs were surrounding the office. They began to split off into groups to go into black neighborhoods to burn, steal, and murder. Gangs of murderous white men patrolled the streets into the night as the city's board of aldermen and the chief of police were forced to resign at gunpoint, replaced with white supremacists hand-picked by the Secret Nine. The new mayor, Alfred Moore Waddell, a member of the Secret Nine, began to banish black people and white Republicans from the city. When the dust settled, 60 black residents had been murdered. 20 government officials had been banished, and white supremacists had successfully overthrown a democratically elected government. But... What happened to them after that? Surely they faced some kind of justice. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. These were the leaders, planners, and killers during the Wilmington insurrection, and this is what happened to them. Charles Aycock became the 50th governor of North Carolina. 
there's a statue of him on Capitol Hill. John Bellamy was elected to serve as a senator representing the state of North Carolina. Cameron Morrison became a congressman, then a senator, then the 55th governor of North Carolina. Ben Tillman was a senator for 25 years. Alfred Waddell remained the mayor of Wilmington, a post he would hold for seven more years. Fernifold Simmons became one of the most powerful members of the Senate with 30 years of tenure. Robert Glenn became a state senator and then the 51st governor of North Carolina. William Kitchen served five terms in the Senate and then became the 52nd governor of North Carolina. Josephus Daniels became the Secretary of the Navy and then the ambassador to Mexico. There's a statue of him in Raleigh. No justice, no peace. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.